This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Leadership in action. <laughs> this is Sirius XM Business Radio, yeah. powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm the executive director of the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton, and I am joined in the studio by my friends and colleagues, Anne Greenhall, deputy director of said program. <laughs> it's so nice to see you, Jeff. Yes. And Mike Useem, the director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management. Checking in, Jeff. <laughs> How are you guys? Great. Good. Good. That's it? This is uh, radio. Yeah, no, that's, no, all, that's all you're going to give me. How's your day going? Good. Fine. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, that's a wrap. It's been a great show. <laughs> now, now. It is serious, accent. Uh, right. Yeah, this is very serious. serious. Very serious. Uh, we have a fantastic show tonight, mm. as both of you know, but I'm, mm-hmm. I am happy to tell our listeners that uh, we have two fantastic guests on the show tonight. Our first guest is Larry Dubinsky, who is the president and CEO of the Franklin Institute, uh, Franklin Institute for anyone who has ever been near Philadelphia or heard of Philadelphia um, knows the Franklin Institute. It's the most visited museum in Pennsylvania um, and one of the true icons of Philadelphia. So uh, we'll be excited to talk with Larry in just a couple minutes. And then in tonight's second hour, we'll be talking to Bruce Goldfarb, who is the president and CEO of Okapi Partners, which is a proxy solicitation firm. Mm. Now, Mike, um, I've just used the phrase proxy solicitation firm yeah. live on the radio. Yeah, I think way, that's so a first. So would, would somebody explain it? So, uh, yeah, would, would, could you maybe give us a, yeah. a few lines around what a proxy solicitation firm uh, might do? Sure. Well, take the example of DuPont that had a activist investor uh, come and propose that the firm break up. And to make that happen, uh, the activist investor uh, proposed to put four of his nominees on the board of directors. The way that directors, of course, are elected to a board is through the annual balloting that shareholders go through, uh, typically focusing on the annual meeting. But uh, since most people don't show up at the annual meeting, they can send in their proxy and the proxy solicitor is working in, in – actually, there was probably one on both sides in that case – trying to persuade investors to send their proxy ballot with the yes, I support management or yes, I support the activist challenger. In the case of DuPont, the uh, challenger did not win. It was a very close race. I mm-hmm. think in the end it was something like 47, 53 percent. But uh, a proxy solicitor is uh, the kind of person who – literally runs a campaign. It's it's uh, not yeah. a political campaign. It's a business campaign, but all the art of great leadership and politics deployed in such a campaign. So there it is, Jeff. Thank you very much. And uh, Okapi Partners, they've been... Uh They've involved, been involved in a number of high-profile litigations yep. over the um, – or activist campaigns over the, the course of um, the last number of years. You remember the Disney and Michael Eisner versus Roy Disney? Um, oh. that, was, that was one of the, hmm. the campaigns they worked on. Also involved in uh, Hewlett-Packard uh, with hmm. the proxy fight with uh, Walter Hewitt. So we will welcome Bruce onto the show in the second hour. Um, and right now, I think – even, you know, sort of going against tradition a little bit, um, I think rather than rather than you, the three of us, yes. banter for right. a little while, yes. um, we're delighted to have Larry here in the studio with us. And so I think we should mm. just get right into a conversation uh, about, Larry, you and, and your leadership um, of the Franklin Institute. So first, let me just say welcome to you. Thank you. Really pleased to be here, obviously, with uh, the three esteemed hosts of, uh, of this uh, <laughs> 
organization and just well, uh, glad to be here on the radio with you. There's these two and then there's me. <laughs> <laughs> they warned yeah. me. That, uh, <laughs> yeah, just to clarify. Yeah. Yeah. And look who's the lead host. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah. It's a yeah. short how, straw issue yeah. that you've drawn. Yeah. yeah, and how did that happen? I don't know, Mike. <laughs> you really slipped up. <laughs> so let me, if I can, let me say a couple words about both you and the Franklin Institute and then um, let's absolutely get into a, um, a free-ranging conversation if we can. Um, as I mentioned uh, in the open, the Franklin Institute is the most visited museum in Pennsylvania. It's a top five tourist destination in the city of Philadelphia. Um, and, and more importantly to me, at least, it, it's one of the leading science centers in the country. I mean, it's an educational resource. It's a cultural mm. resource. Um, and it's one of the anchors of the local economy here in Philadelphia. Um, named in honor of America's first scientist and someone that we here at the university are quite yes, fond of as absolutely. well. Right. And that is Benjamin Franklin. And so I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about some of that connection. And Larry, you've been uh, president and CEO mm. since 2014. Correct. Yeah. Right? And then also, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about this as we as we um, follow you through your career, you've served in many other capacities there as well. So COO, um, uh, you know, um, among many. Career began at the Institute in 1996? Correct. Is that right? Yes, it did. Took so, a little detour after that um, and then came back. All right. So um, maybe just to get into the conversation a little bit, what led you to the Franklin Institute um, back in 1996? Yeah. So um, I was in the fundraising side of the world in development. I had moved to Philadelphia from Houston, Texas. Um, and uh, my wife was going to law school. I was working initially at the United Way here, um, and I'd worked at the United Way in Houston for a number of years. So really working with corporations and individuals and corporations to put money back into health and human services in the community. Um, and got a call one day if I was interested in going to the Franklin Institute. Now, not being from Philadelphia originally, but knowing about what a great institution it was, jumped at the opportunity to go to the Institute and initially was their director of corporate and government relations and a couple of months later became their director of development and government relations. So oversaw the fundraising for the Institute, but mm -hmm. was going to law school at night um, as well during that time and uh, knew I wanted to, to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, it was interesting. I did, a, I did a lot of informational interviews looking at hmm. business schools or law schools and um, interesting at, at that time I made the choice to uh, to go to law school and really loved law school, um, was the director of development um, until 2000, but then went to work um, at Morgan Lewis and Bacchus here in Philadelphia yeah. and did business law. Um, lots of mergers and acquisitions, a lot of emerging growth companies that we worked with as well, sure. um, and really loved that as well. But uh, one day in 2004, got a call if I'd be interested in coming back to the Franklin Institute as VP of External Affairs and General Counsel. And what I really had missed, while I loved uh, – Morgan's a tremendous firm. We had tremendous colleagues, tremendous clients. But I missed the mission part of my yeah. everyday life. Um, my entire life um, had been really focused on that as a, as a teen growing up in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, I led a youth organization for the state of Texas of which we were able to really motivate and move – people to help do community service and raise money. Um, my undergrad at the University of Texas, I led the fraternity system at Texas. And in that role, had thousands of students mm -hmm. raise hundreds of thousands of dollars mm -hmm. and do community service. So to me, that's mm -hmm. um, that was a key part of who I was. And I had missed that in the, in the law firm and was uh, really believed in the mission of the Franklin Institute of inspiring and educating people on science and technology. Well, you, I, I really appreciate you kind of taking us yeah, back there, and I'm going to even take you back a little mm. further then, I think. Um, I'm, I'm always curious when we have guests on the show and they've had this history that, that you know can start in childhood or in adolescence of taking on these designated leadership roles. What was it about you know, leading the, the um, youth organization or leading the fraternity system? Like, wh what called you to that kind of work? Yeah, I, you know, I think that I like people in general. Mm -hmm. And to me... That's a relief. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Even in this environment that we're living in today, I think more people should embrace, right. Uh, right, embrace the good in people. I think I'm an optimist at mm -hmm. heart. And I think that I really see the power in people coming together, working towards... Um, a cause um, that can really make a difference. And so, you know, early on, I saw that in uh, in ninth grade as I was in, in high school and mm -hmm. 
was able to see the power of just one person doing things. And mm-hmm. I'll never forget, I was, uh, you know, uh, my, you know, the first time I was able to do a program in which we fed homeless on Thanksgiving. And I remember mm-hmm. delivering mm-hmm. meals and coming up to a home in Houston, Texas, and the facade of the home looked perfect. But we went to the side of the house, mm-hmm. and there was no side to the house. Oh, wow. um, and I remember delivering their Thanksgiving meal to this large family. And I think that had an impact on on me saying, you know, what more could I do? How could I bring people together? And uh, and I think always took leadership roles, being mm-hmm. head of that organization. Yes, the administrative and organizational part I thrived on. Um, but I think most importantly, it was bringing people together for a common cause and, mm-hmm. and, and good. That's great. Thanks, Larry. So, so Larry, if I can follow that up. Uh, and this is another question I know Jeff and I and Mike like to ask. When you were young, did you have a picture of, you know, what you wanted to be or what you wanted to do? So if if, if you had asked me, I think, and if you would ask people who knew me mm-hmm. both in high school and even college, they would have thought I would have done public service, perhaps run for office at some point in time. Because, uh-huh. again, I really believed in the the fact that you could lead and bring people together, as right. I said earlier. So I think they would have seen me get into public office. And at one point, I really had thought about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but my time at the University of Texas, I really knew that at that point in time, I wanted to go work for an organization that was mission-based. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And so right out of school, um, you know, I went to work for United Way in Houston, mm-hmm. Texas. And and I think it wasn't solidified, really, mm-hmm. till I spent my time on campus, Um I kind of joke at Texas while I was a government history major, I Uh majored in extracurricular activities as well, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, because that's what I really thrived Mm -hmm. on, leadership roles, Mm -hmm. um, putting together leadership conferences for students on campus, Mm -hmm. bringing great speakers from around the country to campus, um, and again, fundraising for community service activities. Mm -hmm. And then law school uh, does seem like a natural progression for a history and government major, someone who has a sense of public service and mission. So was law school in part to give you that versatility if you still thought you might want to go into government? Yeah. So when um, I did, a, which, I, which I always encourage people to do is because it was so helpful for me is really to go out and do a lot of informational interviews. And candidly, being with United Way in Houston, I was able in Houston yeah. to go visit with, you know, the head of Exxon, um, yeah. other big companies in Houston and really get their impression of if you were a 24-year-old at this point mm-hmm. in time, where would you go and what were the interests were. And based on my interests, they thought that a law degree, whether mm-hmm. I went into business, whether I practiced um, law at that point in time or stayed in the nonprofit arena would really help. And, mm-hmm. you know, my time in law school, I, I really enjoyed. I mean, mm-hmm. each each case was realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's what I loved about kind of the, mm-hmm. you know, the law school. And, and it came to some conclusion, but one that you could debate about right. and look at. So I thought that training was really great. And I knew it, you know, one point through law school is pretty clear that I wanted to go work in a law firm. And, uh, and I liked the business aspect. Okay, very good. Mike. Uh, Larry, just uh, kind of playing on the same thread here and quoting you back to yourself here. Yes. You, you like people. You see the power in people. You like to bring people together. You like to have an impact on people. And picking up on where Jeff and Ahan had us going back, uh, trying to understand who you are now from what you were doing in those early years, talk for a few minutes, if you would, about how your role as chief executive of the Franklin Institute allows you to have an impact on people. Yeah. Um you know, it's, um, I feel very fortunate to lead an organization like the Franklin Institute. It has almost a 200-year history, and uh, people ask me what's, you know, what's one of the best parts of my job, and it is leading a tremendous team, um, both of staff and volunteers. And then we also have a board of trustees that's 48 members strong, which is absolutely, you know, I would argue one of the best boards in the country. Hmm. And um, and for me, my job to help each and every one of them um, in some way accomplish a goal that helps us move our mission forward. So it's it's very different skills, obviously, in working in some ways with the board of trustees. But with the staff, um, I really I look for staff that are willing to be innovative, to try things. You know, our business is not one where if you make a mistake, someone's going to get injured. Um, But we can try new and different things and really make an impact. And if we make a mistake, we can learn from that mistake and go forward. So I really encourage that among my staff. Um, 
We are in a collaborative environment. You know, it's always interesting, and, and universities have this as well. You mm-hmm. have a variety of different folks from academics to operations people that all need to work together in order to achieve a goal, and we have that as well <laughs> in a museum setting. I think that balance of mission margin is always, you know, one of those tough things to do. You have educators that are so focused on the mission part um, that they don't realize that, you know, in order to pay your salary, we need to have good philanthropy, good support, but also run a very solid business because earned revenue is a large part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so again, mm-hmm. my goal is to to hire as talented of people as I can, um, to recruit those, retain those, provide development for them. And people ask me, my, my greatest, um, you know, I feel best when not only are my employees performing well with us, but also even if they move on to another role <laughs> in which they've grown to, mm-hmm. um, I take some pride in that. Because in the end of the day, I've helped that individual hopefully get to that level and provided them with the support. It's great. Larry, let me uh, add another element to the the mix here. Anybody walking through the main door into the Franklin Institute uh, does see a much larger-than-life statue of the Benjamin Franklin. The Institute is named for Ben. He was a Philadelphia resident, of course. Mm -hmm. And in some respects, um, just like the university here, University of Pennsylvania, the shadow of Benjamin Franklin is very long. It uh, Mm -hmm. helps us kind of just know where we're going and it's a little bit part of our DNA. So referencing now Benjamin Franklin at the Franklin Institute, yeah. you probably feel his shadow every day when you're at work. I do, and um, <laughs> late at night, in all honesty. So <laughs> the, the Institute houses the Benjamin Franklin National Memorial, a statue the size and scope of the Abraham Lincoln Memorial sits in the middle of our building. And late at night when I'm leaving, I will walk through the memorial um, the, the memorial's lit, but the, the around mm-hmm. it's dark. And you do look up and gaze at Ben and, and, and take a deep breath, knowing here's an individual that accomplished so much, yeah. whether it was science, innovation, mm-hmm. statesmanship. Um, look at the many institutions here in Philadelphia mm-hmm. that he founded mm-hmm. as a first and, and a great thought leader. And I do pause. I mean, I do pause and mm-hmm. look up and say, you know, that's, you know, that's kind of what we want people to do. We want mm-hmm. them to be multi-talented in, in a variety of different ways to be able to use all skills. Not let's not pigeonhole people right away. I mean, here was a person who could innovate and yet, all, you know, whether it was in science or technology or business. And um, to me, that's, you know, some of the, some of those nights when I'm walking through and I just pause for a minute and look up and uh, and feel very fortunate to be in the yeah. position I'm in. That's great. So let me remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm here with Ann Greenhall and Mike Useem, and we are talking with Larry Dubinsky, who is the president and CEO of the Franklin Institute. So, Larry, um, Mike has uh, – he's often made a comment that I'll I'll repeat here and and probably let it morph into a question, and that is that that for presidents and CEOs – most of the easy problems get solved before they get to your desk, right? And so you tend to deal with the thornier things. Um, give us a sense. Like what it, is there an average day in the life of the CEO of the Franklin Institute? You know, one of the things I love is no two days are alike. Um, you know, as I – off, off um, radio, we were talking earlier today, we have in from China the head of the Terracotta Warriors Museum um, because we have this great Terracotta Museum there, and I've spent part of the day with, with him. Um, I've spent part of the day with kids, um, young first graders seeing an exhibition for the first time. Um, I met with volunteers um, as well. So every couple of days mm-hmm. is – is every day is really different. Um and you use a variety of different skill sets throughout it. I have a great team that does help focus on everything from operations to philanthropy um, to working with what exhibitions we're, <laughs> we're doing. But there's no doubt that, you know, some of the bigger issues that, that come, not only the strategic thinking, but um, day-to-day issues that, that affect as, a, as an institution that welcomes almost a million visitors a year – um, as any public institution, sure. that comes with its own set of, uh, of issues, especially in the world we live in today. Mm-hmm. And I think as well as we look at being able to bring some of the biggest issues of science and technology and trying to remain relevant mm-hmm. in that also brings um, 
things to to the forefront. Yeah. And now, I mean, your role you, you you served in so many of these executive leadership yeah. roles, um, including chief operating officer, yeah. before yeah. becoming CEO. Um, how how did that help you kind of shape the way that you would lead as a CEO? Yeah, no, I think that uh, you know I, I was fortunate that when I took over as as president and CEO, there were no skeletons that I you know coming in from internally. Right. I think mm-hmm. you really do, especially as being chief operating officer, get a sense of where are the issues that may be there that you want to change and go forward with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I was, you know, in, in many ways, a, a leg up in, in case of a in, if someone from outside had come in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think each one of those positions prepared me in, in different ways. I think I've been very fortunate, as many people, to have some great mentors along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the individual who, who brought me back, um, an individual named Ken Kirby, who was probably uh, one of the great fundraisers anywhere um, and external affairs people really um, helped me I think in shaping and and then again going out I think our board um, you know the institute's been really privileged and, and Mike knows some of the folks that uh, have provided great mentorship towards me Don morale who's our chair our previous chair Marsha Perlman we've been so fortunate yeah. to have in my role and even in my roles as executive VP and COO, some great leaders in the community, um, and, and many, you know, there's so many. Dennis O'Brien, who's mm-hmm. one of the Exelon folks, has been on my board and been a great mentor to me as well. So I think that, you know, we all learn. We learn, and and, and to me, folks that have provided candid feedback on mm-hmm. how I can improve, yes, I appreciate when they say, you know, what you've done well, but I think for growth, for them to share with me, how I can continue to grow and and, uh, has been extremely helpful. Larry, I might follow up a little bit on Jeff's question. Uh, Mike and Jeff will remember that we had a faculty member on the show a while ago who's written about the chief operating officer role. And he said that of all those C-suite roles, that that's the one that seems the most variable. There are many ways in which people fill it. So just for example, sometimes uh, in, say, a startup tech company, the COO might be a kind of elder statesman who even helps guide the CEO. Or it could be someone who's up and coming, looking to be the the next CEO. So when you look back on your role as chief operating officer, how would you describe it? Yeah, I think um, I was an individual who clearly was moving to a next stage, whether Mm -hmm. here at the Franklin Institute or perhaps at another institution so for me, I was absolutely in this mode of, I think, leading large parts of the museum. Mm-hmm. And I think people saw it in that way. I think I developed the experience of being able to bring some of that knowledge forward. But I think as all of us continue to grow um, before we take on that that role in, as, as CEO, mm-hmm. and I think my, my roles really helped me do that. I was able to gain knowledge. You know, one of the things being the lawyer um, initially – you're you're involved in everything from from the get go, and that really helped. Really, yeah, from the time true. I came back in 2004, because any major decision that's happening throughout the museum, you're involved with whether yeah. it's negotiating an exhibit, whether it's human resources or finance, and so that helped. And I think got me ready for the COO role where I had, I would say, this combined. Yes, it was time to look to move up to the next role, but also being able to provide advice throughout the museum. Yeah, but the timing must have been right. Yes. So can you say a little bit more about that? The CEO who was in place previously. Yeah, had been there 20 years um, and had run a museum in St. Louis, had come here for 20 years and had retired. Um, The Institute had begun a a search, um, but then had kind of decided, looked internally and said, we we have the right person here. Let's let's go ahead and move forward with them and not um, look out. A very, at times, mm-hmm. candidly, a very un-Philadelphia thing to do. I think mm-hmm. many times Philadelphians feel they, you know, organizations need to look outside of the city and bring someone in new. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, to a testament to the board that uh, they said, you know what, we think we have the right person here to mm-hmm. take over this role. And we're not going to go forward with the search. We're going to move him into the role. Great. Mike. Uh, Larry, I'm going to ask about a kind of underappreciated aspect to what you do, and it really, I think, is an under-described element of anybody's leadership, which is to bring in people, resources, gift, customers, clients, visitors, and so on. 
And uh, if you're at a law firm, you've got to bring in your clients. If you uh, run a, a small community service group in your in your local town, you've got to bring in support, gifts, hopefully. Mm-hmm. It's intrinsic in leadership, although we all, in anybody's leadership, we often don't, I think, give it enough credit. Um, and also, it's a little bit of a mystery to people who are starting out to do that. How exactly do you raise money, bring yeah. people onto your board? Yeah. So no, over to you. Yeah, no. You know, first of all, I always – first of all, you just have to be able to accept the fact that some people are going to tell you no. And if, if you can't handle rejection, <laughs> you're not going to be a good fundraiser, right? Because not, you're not going to get every gift. Mm-hmm. I really believe I – go, I go out to people and, one, you want to listen. You want to understand where they are looking to place their philanthropic support and again, I'm an optimist. I'm hoping that people are. And you know what? If it's the Franklin Institute, that's great. If it's the University of Pennsylvania, that's great. My hope is just that people are philanthropic. So my conversations usually begin with what are people's interests and what are they looking to do? Fortunately, with the Institute, because we're science, technology, engineering, and math, we're so focused on education um, of young and old alike and inspiration. Um we, we connect with a lot of people mm-hmm. that are trying to do that, especially nowadays, you know, for all of us to have some knowledge of mm-hmm. basic science education and make decisions daily is important. Um, and then we also know their jobs in science, technology, engineering and mm-hmm. math. And how do yes. we get people ready for those? So to me, that is, you know, that's part of what I bring out. Um, we do research, obviously, on, on people we're going to go visit with. So we have some knowledge of mm-hmm. who we're there. We don't go in blind and in which it happens um and you you know again you engage in a conversation Mm -hmm. um i no one has to give me a dime and i think you know there are people who Mm. at some point walk in and say you know i can't believe these people are not giving me money that's not the way myself or my team views it we have to earn your trust we have to earn your you know provide you with the knowledge that your investment in us and the franklin institute will make a difference once we get that, we have to make sure we keep informing you of how those dollars are put <laughs> yeah. to work. Um, and candidly, we have to say thank you many, many times. I mean, this is folks' hard-earned money um, that they are deciding to place trust in us to utilize in a way to better the world. And so that's really always been my view. Um, and you know what? You're going to get you're going to get a few no's, but hopefully, you get a lot more yeses. And we've been fortunate that we've been successful on that. <laughs> I've got a quick follow-up question, but I think I'm going to yield the floor to Jeff because we're going to take a break. But when we come mm-hmm. back, I'd like to hear more about your work with your trustees. How do, how mm-hmm. do you get them into a room? They're all volunteers. They give you a lot of time. Let's come back to that. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> that was smooth handoff, right. Mike. It's just it's so I couldn't <laughs> let it stay that smooth. <laughs> I just I wanted to take a moment and just appreciate <laughs> yeah. the smoothness. Huh? Mike, mm, so smooth. <laughs> so smooth. So smooth. All right, stay with us, everyone. After the break, we'll talk more with Larry Dubinsky. I'm Jeff Klein. You're listening to Leadership in Action here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. This is Leadership in Action, Blinded by Science. Uh, Sirius XM, business radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm in the studio with Mike Yuseem and Ann Greenhall and Larry Dubinsky, who is the president and CEO of the Franklin Institute. We are continuing a conversation about about the Institute and his role uh, as the CEO. And Ann, over to yeah. you. Yeah. Mike, uh teed us up to talk about the board, and I absolutely want to get there. But before we jump to the board, Larry, uh, I just would love to know sort of percentages. You know, so the in your in your financial statement, what percentage is philanthropy and so on? Yeah, so our um, about 60% of our revenue is earned. Um, 30% is philanthropy, and we include membership in that area as well. I'd say 22, 23% are straight philanthropy, and the, the rest are membership. And then we have a f- little bit of endowment and a couple of uh, national federal government grants that, okay. uh, that kind of round it out for and, us. And is that percentage one that you feel confident about moving forward? 
Yeah, so that's it's a great question. Our our goal is to continue to diversify our earned revenue model and also increase our endowment as well as increase philanthropy primarily through individual giving. Okay. So so an answer is no, I'm not as comfortable with that as mm-hmm. a uh, you know, every year you you start at zero both on the philanthropy side and on the earned revenue side and we are very driven at 60% by mm-hmm. admissions. Um, traveling exhibit, special exhibit, okay. admission is is part of that as well. That's a that's a real big differential in every year. And then the ancillary mm. that comes with that, so food service, parking, retail, all flies off the revenue of attendance that's there. So, so for us, that's you know we're always looking at it. We do a lot of rentals mm. as well, rentals of our facility. We did fifty weddings last oh, year, wow. for instance. Oh, we do. Wow. 280 events a year. Oh, um, so that's a big number for us as well. And uh, and so we're looking at diversifying our revenue on, on the earned side. So for instance, this year um, with the escape room craze yes, that has happened, yes. we opened two escape rooms in our museum um, in, in order to capture, and, and, it, and we're capturing, candidly, the biggest market so far is corporate organizations that are using it for team, team building because it's a great team building critical you know thinking mm-hmm. um exercise and so we've had a, had a great group there and I, I think we thought at first it would be this 21 to 45 crowd would be the biggest um but we're seeing the you know the corporate world really take to it so great. that's that's an example of a way we're trying to diversify the the revenue we have on the earn side all right great thank you Mike, how about your question well, on the board? To kick, uh, yeah, Larry, to kick back on that issue of the board and, and to maybe offer a, a bit of a angle on that, uh, you're building for this year. You've got to get through the year. You've had, a, I think, a great year. Uh, but you're also building five or ten years out. And thinking about the board, to what extent do you have to be self-conscious about bringing people onto the board who can see ahead and understand where this region is going, appreciate what's going to be needed, not this year, but five years out and beyond. Anyway, over to you on that one. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we have, as I said, I feel very fortunate that we have a a great board, and we really look at a variety of different aspects. Um, A board nominating committee that does an amazing job that's really looking at who we need to populate. I will say, and right now, one of the things you look at our agenda on board nominating, the first two things really are diversity, um, both minority diversity and gender diversity. And we're very proud. We're at 40% women on our board and we're 20% minorities um, on our board as well. So we continue to look at that as a way to make sure we're reflective of the community as a whole. Mm-hmm. And then we also really look, obviously, the you know we need a board that is able to bring us the knowledge and expertise we need. Our board committees are very engaged. And as, as you look at it, we have some people who have been there for a while, but we are also very focused on the next generation. We're focused on bringing in entrepreneurs who will make us look and think in different ways. Um, so pushing the envelope a little bit because we can't, you know, our our business is like any others. If we sit back and rest on our laurels, we won't be here in 10 years. Um, you know, place-based institutions um, like museums are changing, and so we have to evolve. So. You know, the digital world, we've taken a big step into that and and brought some folks on in that. We have several um, trustees, really, who are what I would call non-traditional trustees um, in some organizations that have really added. um, That's great. And, Larry, maybe a more personal question on that. In working with your trustees, you've got more than 40. Uh, it's, It's a board. They meet collectively. But you probably have to develop relations with every one of your trustees. So... Flesh that out for us. How do you do that? Yeah. What goes into it? Yeah, you spend a lot of personal time with them. Our, you know, a lot of the work that we do gets done at the committees. And, and the mm-hmm. goal is that those committee meetings are engaging and, you know, n- nothing's perfunctory. We're not just yeah. handing things out yeah. and we want their input. Our finance committee meetings are great because even before we go in, I get emails with 15 questions from my trustees because they've looked at it and they have the mm-hmm. questions um, that, that are there and are all the committees really function at a high level. But for me, it is that, you know, personal touch. You know, it's it's meetings one-on-one with them. It is engaging them. Again, I, I can't stress enough the listening of what their interest is, but also for us, again, to do our research and background to know what skill set they have that could be helpful to us as we look at hmm. the, the business side of things, the, the philanthropy sides, the education side, this thoughtfulness um, going forward, the governance side of things. Mm-hmm. So we really, um, 
you know, my job is to find the match of which they feel good about what they're doing for us, and we are getting the most out of them. So it has to be, you know, we, we say this, it has to be a win-win situation. We revisit really all the time with our trustees to make sure that they are feeling engaged and worthwhile. Um, we are very good about going to trustees that perhaps are not participating at the level they need to and saying, you know, it may be time for you to, to move on. A lot of nonprofits, that's where they struggle. They mm-hmm. don't have those hard conversations with trustees. We tend to. Um, and there's an expectation that's held by both the staff, but really by the trustee leadership um, of everything from engagement and giving that really sets the tone at the top. It's great. Mm-hmm. They're all donors. They're all donors. All donors. Yeah. Does that uh, make it challenging in some ways if they're of different levels of uh, contribution? So it, it doesn't. Um, we try to make, you know, people feel as comfortable. But we mm-hmm. do, you know, we set a minimum expectation for our trustees. Mm-hmm. And so when they, I think honesty right off the bat, when you sit yep. down across the table from somebody who potentially is a trustee, we have a list that we hand them and we say, these are the expectations. These mm-hmm. are the time expectations. These are the philanthropic mm-hmm. expectations. These are kind of the ambassadorship expectations. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure you're very clear to know what those are before you go into this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think setting those expectations mm-hmm. up front so there's no gray area is really, mm-hmm. really important. That's good. Thank you. Jeff. So I, um, I want to kind of connect back to the conversation that we were having about, you know, earned revenue and the need to stay innovative. Um, and, and I know for you that probably means developing or at least evaluating all kinds of different partnerships. Right. Some yes. that are some that are, you know, more traditional museum to museum, um, some that are non-traditional. So it, walk us through a little bit. Um, how do you think about partnership? What are some of the things that you, you look for in a partner? Yeah, this is this is a great question. Um, literally, I get hundreds of calls a month from individuals saying, I want to partner with you, mm-hmm. um, you know, save our school or something along those lines. And. As you all know, as a leader of an organization, and especially one that is a mission-based, you want to help as many people as you can. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't happen if you partner with everyone. So for me, we kind of have a a partnership matrix. We really look Mm -hmm. at where's the win-win. I'm also a believer of not to create something new if there's an entity out there that's existing doing something. that's That's a great partnership, so you can both gain from that. We look at organizations that are really doing good work. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we've created one of the best models that we have is the Institute started the Philadelphia Science Festival. We have 200 partners in that. um, that. My team really works hard with the partners. Those partners now come in and do other programs Mm -hmm. with us. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think they would say it's a a win-win throughout. But they have to really be engaged. They have to be willing to to work at a level that's higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I think if it's not working, you have to be able to say, you know, we tried this, it's really not working. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there is this expectation that as a, as a large institution, you should just partner with everybody. Um, and that can happen. I mean, as in, right. a, as in a for-profit company. I mean, I always say, my mantra is very clearly, nonprofit is a tax status. It's mm-hmm. not how you run an organization. <laughs> and... Um, and to me, you have to make sure you're finding partners that help you succeed on your mission mm-hmm. and that, therefore, you're having the impact you, you want to have. And thank you for that, Larry. I, I know kind of connected to this topic of, of partnerships, I know you were recently named chair-elect uh, for the Association of Science Technology Centers, that, that board of directors. Mm-hmm. Um, so, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about what that is? That's a, a worldwide association, right? What yes. the, the role of that association, and then um, what kind of insight do you have about the, the landscape for these kinds of science technology centers? Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, so the Association of Science and Technology Centers is made up of over 700 organizations throughout the world in 50 countries, um, and... Essentially, the goal of the organization is to promote science centers to perform a couple of tasks, advocacy both nationally here in the United States, Mm -hmm. but also globally to provide professional development opportunities for science center members throughout the country and around the world as well, 
to do research that helps us as science centers be able to run both better businesses but also better educational impact programs throughout. So kind of the best of the best that, that's out there as well. It also provides this opportunity for organizations to network on challenges and mm-hmm. opportunities that are together. Um, I feel very fortunate, obviously, to be able to be chair-elect and then will lead this organization mm-hmm. um, because I think there's no doubt, like any organization, um, any company, we have to be very forward-looking, as I, as I mentioned before. And like any business, especially now, um, science centers have to continue to evolve and find ways to make sure we're relevant. Um, no matter what your politics are at this point in time, mm-hmm. there's no doubt that certain science is under attack um, and that we really feel as institutions we need to work together to make sure that people do have the facts in hand to make decisions um, that impact their lives every day. And I think that's a big role that we that we play as well. Yeah, I'm just curious, Larry, how do you go about doing that? Yeah. I, I agree, but how? Both on the local level or the national yeah, level? Either way. Yeah, either so, way. I mean, we have some great, you know, local programs that, that we do. We have a climate change education program that we're in targeted communities in Philadelphia showing people and using kind of a marketing technique more than just an education technique of how people can make decisions that will help the environment that they do in everyday life. Um, We have a program in Philadelphia, an urban astronomy program, where we are all over the city. So you are in some of the most troubled neighborhoods in Philadelphia and and around the area where for the first time people are looking through telescopes um, (laughs) up at the sky. And we're partnering with organizations that work in that community, again, looking at, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the leading partnerships in that way. We're also believers in utilizing other facilities. So the Institute is working in 15 states around the country um, with libraries. So taking literacy and science education together, pairing them, training librarians to do after school and weekend programs. Um, And this grant that we just got that we're under will be in, as I said, 15 states affecting a half a million people throughout. So some of the examples that we can do, and as, as a larger organization, tomorrow is the International Science Center Day, and science <laughs> centers from around the world are all working on different programs throughout. UNESCO is really the driver of this for us. Um, again, showing the impact that science centers can have in different communities, rural, large cities like ours. But everybody's really coming together to show the power of science. And, and I'll use one quick example Great. I know. Um, and that is that on in, in August, on the day of the solar eclipse, um, the Institute's chief astronomer was in St. Joseph's, Missouri. He was the lead on a variety of national and international networks talking about the science behind it. Here in Philadelphia, we had 10,000 people show up at the Franklin Institute outside, <laughs> all different races, all mm-hmm. different economic mm-hmm. statuses, all together looking up at the sky engaging in science and in wonderment. And to me, that's, you know, in the end of the day, that's what it's all about. That's great. Let me uh, remind our listeners that I'm Jeff. That's all I wanted to remind (laughs) No, no, come on. I'm Jeff. Going on. Mike and leadership in action. We got that. Um, We're talking with Larry Dubinsky, who's the president and CEO of the Franklin Institute. Mike, over to you. Larry, just thinking about the fact on the way into work, you pass the statue of Benjamin Franklin. You've already mentioned you see him on the way out, but let's just pass the, uh, the statue on the way in. You get up to your office, uh, day opens wonderfully, uh, it's sunny outside, and then maybe a few things begin to go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. So uh, just pick up on maybe one of the, the tougher decisions you've had to face or one of the bigger decisions you've had to face. What happens? Are you in your office? Are people there? Are there phone calls coming in? Just describe it to us, if yeah. you would. Yeah. To me, if there's a if there's a big decision that, that I have to make, I do bring in my leadership team um, to really make sure we are working through whatever that issue may be. I mean, I'm not one to not – I want to get all the facts. I want to get the options, some that I may be able to formulate by myself. But I do want to hear from the team that's on the ground um, first – But then I'll make a decision um, jointly, but at times, obviously, you know, we'll make the decision on how to deal with something as as we go forward. And, uh, again, if there's there's something that we may not have the expertise in-house to do, then I will look outside of that. I'll I'll reach out to perhaps some trustees, 
perhaps at some other firms that, uh, that, that we know of, that we have a relationship that could provide some counsel to me yeah. that it's not there. So quick add on that. As you became chief executive officer, you haven't done that before. You've got right. a lot of perceptions of what should be done once you're in that office. But once you're in the office, the world looks a little bit differently than what you were seeing on, on, um, on looking in. So what turned out to be less true or even not true? Or what were some of the surprises when you did become chief executive, came to work that one day, maybe a July 1st or something like that? What did you find surprising? Well, I think no matter what, in, in, in that role and having come from inside, you have colleagues that look at you as one way, as a, as a peer or a colleague, even in the chief mm-hmm. operating role, um, that all of a sudden the next day, you know, you are you are their yeah, boss. You're the boss. And um and I think that <laughs> challenge is, is one that is that it's one that's in you know that that comes out. I think, you know, probably one of the decisions in, in retrospect that uh that you look at is at times there's some folks that you want to give a chance to and so you'll give them a little longer than perhaps you could and then I think in the other way it is you know perhaps on day one you should start out with a fresh start and build your team on certain ways if that makes sense and I think that's probably the biggest lesson I learned even going in knowing there were some decisions that I wanted to make um, I thought perhaps the best decision was again still per, to wait a little bit um, in this new role and, and in the end of the day I made the same decision that I would have made on day one and I probably should have made it on day yeah. one it's good Um, I think I'd love to talk just a little bit more, and you've referenced it um, a little bit, but science usually isn't political, right? right? And and we're in a time right now where we're thinking about um, fake news and alternate facts and everything else. I mean, how does, you know, and, and you could really probably talk about this from the perspective of the Franklin Institute or from the perspective um, of the Association of Science and Technology Centers. Um, how do scientists engage in in a debate where it feels like the rules have shifted some? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the big problems we have, and we're trying to address it in, in a variety of ways, are scientists in general aren't great communicators. Mm. Um, and so some they of the programs... They say that about academics as exactly. well. <laughs> mm. I'm not going to touch Jeff. that one. On this, uh, um, yeah. I was talking about Mike. Yeah, so, uh, exactly. I think in this group, you know, I think it's true. I think business folks are much better mm. at communication than science folks, even your colleagues in science academic um, institutions. But we, we need to make sure we can help scientists both in academic and in business, explain what they're doing and what that impact is in a much better way. I think that it's a troubling time now that there's discussion about climate change, that there's discussion about vaccination use, Mm -hmm. um, that, um, you know, energy use in in certain ways. I think it's very troubling that um, we are again at a place where it seems that we are not believing, you know, there's alternative facts. And I think we as institutions... Um, probably you're going to have to take a bigger stand on that. Yes, train people to be better communicators, Mm -hmm. um, explain them, show them what science is doing. I mean, when I talk about the, you know, the fact that GMOs are are part of life now, not all GMO, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. a bad thing. We're now able to feed more people than we ever have before. I mean, these are some good facts. Mm -hmm. We all have to make choices out Mm -hmm. there. No one's saying, we all agree, we're going to be driving cars for a while. But, hey, let's continue to see if we can make more energy-efficient cars. It's not, there's not a one-side-fit-all. And I think this, um, this new discussion is there is one side. And, and the side is one that has said, you know, I just, you're wrong. I don't believe in it. And, and, and that's the fact, when in case it's not the fact. Um, and it's been proven over and over again. Um, and, and, again, the environment, energy, yeah. Um, vaccinations are just are three of the most prevalent examples of that. And, and I think it's as well, I'll just say, because where we're at, you know, business is good. I think that as well, you know, Mike and I have had this conversation before, this demonization of companies that, you know, perhaps are in the pharmaceutical business or in the finance business is not great either, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. companies are driving our economy. They are providing jobs. And the end of the day, we really need that. And a lot of those companies are science and technology-based yeah. companies. And that's good for 
that's good for America. It's good for the world. And um, and I do get very frustrated when we see this debate occurring, and it and it seems to be um, just going in the wrong direction. Yeah. And uh, Larry, if if you would maybe to take this to a more a more global scale, then when when you get together with um, with the board of directors for the Association of Science and Technology Centers, does does the conversation change at all? Um, so it has changed recently. I'll tell you the story. I was in uh, Munich recently, and the head of uh, one of the largest museums in Germany. I, mm. I go to his museum, and he puts his arm around me, and he says, "What's happened?" He goes, <laughs> "You as America were the leaders." And you're ceding that leadership role in science to other countries. Yeah. Please come back the lead. Um, and then he said, if I wanted to immigrate there, that he would, you know, help me have that happen. Which I said, no way. I'm, I, I, I believe America is the greatest country in the world, and uh, very proud to represent it worldwide. But I think, I think, if I as I talk to my peers around the world, that's what they're they're surprised that America has decided to cede its leadership role in science to other countries. And they want America to immediately step back in and be the leader. Larry, to play that out, you've got a bigger role to play in the years to come. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You and, and science centers and the like all over the world. Yes. I, th- I think it's such an, so important. I think, you know, as, as I said, people need facts they can trust. And, uh, and I think we as science centers yeah. can do that. And the relevancy now more than ever is so important. Well, I'll just return to that that image that you were painting of um, the the day of the eclipse and ten thousand ten thousand yeah. people standing outside mm-hmm. the Franklin Institute watching the eclipse. I mean, I think if we can return to the wonder of science, um, mm-hmm. it's always been a unifying force. And uh, you know, I I grew up an hour north of Philadelphia, so I think the first museum I ever went to was the Franklin yeah. Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, and when when I showed yeah. up there with my kids, right, yeah. it it had it has mm-hmm. that same effect, the wonder of science is what allows us to advance as, as a human race. That's right. I visited my grandmother here in Philadelphia, and the Franklin Institute was the place we always went. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, thank Larry, you. thank you for joining the show yeah. tonight. We've really enjoyed the conversation. No, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me here. Thanks for your kind comments about the about the Franklin Institute. And, you know, as we said, science is something for everybody to learn. And, uh, you know, the goal of both the Franklin Institute and science centers around the world is to make sure people have that information have that education, and have that inspiration. So thank you. Yeah, Larry, if our listeners want to learn more about the Franklin Institute, um, where would you direct them? Yes, I'd direct them. Our website is fi.edu, and there's a lot of great information on there. All right. All right, Larry, thanks. That's great. Thank you very much for having me. So we're going to transition a little bit. I'll say. We're going to move from (laughs) science to proxy solicitation. Yeah. And I don't know exactly what the link is, but by the time we're done this conversation, we will absolutely know. Because I think that's true. One thing we know about leadership in action is it is serendipitous, right? <laughs> yes. There are always leadership's universal. There are always uh, these connecting threads. So just ahead um, mm-hmm. for our listeners, we're and here's part of here is part of the connection um, already. Of course, right? Okay. Uh, so we're going to welcome Bruce Goldfarb on the show. As I told you, he is the CEO of Okapi Partners. Um, and he works really frequently with boards, right? He work, We've been talking about boards tonight, the role that boards play within, mm-hmm. uh, within an institution like the Franklin Institute. Um, here, right, within the, the corporate board, the for-profit board world, um, boards are often the location of some of the battles that go on for um, control of the company, and specifically as we think about um, shareholder activism and the effect that it's had on on many, many companies. So um, as we return, we will welcome Bruce on the show, and we will look forward to digging into the complexity of running campaigns um, at the shareholder level. I'm Jeff Klein. You're listening to Leadership in Action on <laughs> Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.